This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please visit our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 20th of September 2018, Dr. Lindsay Black of Maynooth University reads her paper entitled Diagnosing Insanity, Women, Murder and Mental Health in 20th Century Ireland. The chair for this paper was Catherine Cox, Associate Professor at the School of History at University College Dublin. Tonight we have um, Dr. Lindsay Black, um, who was here in um, Criminology at UCD um, on a postdoctoral Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow from 2016 to 2018. Lindsay is now a lecturer in criminology in the Department of Law at Maynooth and obviously hightailed it up here <laughs> um, in her first week of teaching um, to, to give the paper, which is, I know how traumatic the first week of teaching is. We're, we're in the numbness of whatever, is it the third or the second? I don't even know second. anymore. Um, so I am very appreciative of you coming up. Um, you received your PhD from Trinity Co- um, College Dublin, um, and your current work basically examines the cases of women sentenced to death in post-independence Ireland, so a big um, and important topic. Um, tonight, Lindsay is going to present on diagnosing insanity, women, murder, and mental health in 20th century Ireland. So, thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for asking me along. Um, so, yeah, today I'm going to talk about my PhD research, uh, which was on women who were sentenced to death in independent Ireland. And as Catherine said, I, this is my first week at Maynooth, so I am very sorry if it's not as polished as I would like it to be, and if the slides are a bit rough and ready. Um, But uh, I'll be talking broadly about women sentenced to death in Ireland, but looking at three specific uh, cases and exploring how discourses of pathology were operationalised in these three cases. So throughout, I rely on documents from the National Archives, where I work with court files and transcripts, um, files held by the Department of Antishuk and the Department of Justice. Um, Although, unfortunately, I had no access to files from the Central Mental Hospital, I was very fortunate in that the Department of Justice had individual prisoner files which gave um, a good amount of information about the diagnoses in these cases and for two of the women the journey from prison to the hospital and then for one of the women the journey out of hospital again. So today the focus of the paper relates to these three women um, in particular who were among the cohort of women who were sentenced to death for murder in Ireland. And I'm talking about these three women uh, because they were the three among the sample who were subject to explicit discourses of pathology, including two of the three who were certified as insane and ended up in uh, Dundrum, and another um, who was talked about in heavily pathologised language. Uh, Today, though, before I do that, I'd like to um, kind of outline the context more kind of broadly that these women um, kind of existed in. So I'll give a brief overview of the cohort of all women who were sentenced to death in this period, um, including the profile of the killings and the circumstances of the women, um, many of whom had been convicted for the murder of their their infant. 
uh, outline the extension of mercy to the majority of the death sentence women through commutation of their sentence, and I'll also highlight the flip side of this mercy in the heavily paternalistic treatment of the women who were reprieved. And I'll then move on to talk about the three case studies, outlining their particular circumstances. Um, so that's Elizabeth Doran, Mary Daly, and Mimi Cadden. Um, and then I'll kind of move on to talk about some of the themes that emerged from their cases, including the idea of insanity being inherited and uh, the female body as predisposition to disease in itself. Throughout the discussions of Doran Daly and Cadden, issues of class, age and marital status influence how they are interpreted, including whether or not they could benefit from a veneer of respectability. And these constructions of the women were pivotal in how they were treated. And I'll outline some of the ways that these categories influenced official responses to their behaviour. Finally, I'll look at the view of these women as difficult, but not necessarily dangerous. Uh, before any of that, however, just to run through the legal context of the period. So on independence in 1922, the law stated that there was a mandatory sentence of death for anyone who was convicted of murder. Um, this meant that when the jury found a guilty verdict for murder, there was no choice in the matter. The judge had to impose a sentence of death. And this continued to 1964, when there was a two-tier system brought in by the Criminal Justice Act of that year. Um, so under this, there was non-capital murder and capital murder. The capital murder regime lasted until 1990, um, and people were death sentenced under this, but no one was actually executed. So between 1922 and 1964, Anyone convicted of murder had to be sentenced to death, unless you were under the required age. So 22 women in this period were sentenced to death, uh, which correspondingly means that 22 women in this period would have been convicted of murder. Of these 22, only one woman was executed, and the other 21 women had their sentences of death commuted to penal servitude for life. So the three women that I'll be talking about in more detail today, therefore, kind of went through a trial. They were convicted of murder. They would have been death sentenced. They would have had their sentence commuted. Um, and that's kind of their journey through the criminal justice process. Uh, for men in the same period, um, they were much less likely to be reprieved. Kind of half of all of the 68 or whatever it was men were executed and only half were reprieved. Um, so there is an obvious gendering of punishment right at the outset in terms of what happens to people who have a sentence of death imposed on them. Of the 22 women who were death sentenced, 12 uh, received the sentence for the murder of an infant, and 10 received the sentence for the murder of an adult. Although there were 22 women, there were only 21 victims because two of the women were jointly convicted for the murder of one of their infants. They were two sisters, Rose and Elizabeth Edwards. So over half the women in this period had been convicted of murdering their infants. Um, and of these 12 women, I mean, these are only a fraction of the hundreds of women who would have been suspected of infanticide through this period. And as Radigan and Farrell and Brennan and other scholars have shown, um, most cases of suspected infanticide would have ultimately been dealt with by way of lesser charges. And when women did kill their infants, who tended to be born outside of marriage, they were clearly motivated by strong feelings of shame. And all but one of the infants in my sample were born outside of marriage. Uh, the one that wasn't was the infant of Catherine O'Hearn. 
but Catherine had gotten married while she was heavily pregnant um, and she continued to live with her family after the marriage. So it was still considered a crisis moment for the family and for Catherine. So the women who were typically accused of infanticide were unmarried in their 20s. They were from poor backgrounds and they worked in domestic service. Um, and because women tended to conceal their pregnancies, a lot of them gave birth alone. So four of the 12 women gave birth alone. Um, and obviously, when the jury were recommending mercy in these cases, the jury recommended mercy based on some understanding of their mental state at the time of giving birth. And you can see the desperate lengths that some of the women went to in the case of Mamie Cadden, um, who's one of the three women I'll be looking at in more detail today. She's well known now and I think has almost achieved an iconic status in Irish social history um, because of her role as an abortionist, abortionist in the mid-century. Um, and you can see that although 12 women were sentenced to death for the murder of an infant, the restrictive laws on fertility had casualties outside of that as well, including Helen O'Reilly, who was Mimi Cadden's victim. So what marks out the women convicted of infant murder from the women who ended up facing lesser charges, like concealment of birth, for example, was things like the age of the victim. So for infants born in an institution like... Um, the South Dublin Union, for example, or the county home, uh, it was less likely that they could use an excuse that their mind had been kind of altered and impacted by the immediacy of childbirth. And Elizabeth Dorn, um, the other woman, another woman that I'll be talking about today, for example, she'd given birth in a county home. Uh, on her discharge from this place, she was making her way home and she killed the infant. Of the 10 women who murdered adults, they tended to kill within their own family, and this reflects the international literature on this. Women don't kill that often. They commit a minority of murders. But when they do, it tends to be within the family. But there were atypical killings in the sample as well. For example, the case of Mary Daly, who's the last woman I'll be talking about today. She killed an elderly woman uh, in a Dublin church in an unprovoked attack. So in terms of the lives of the kind of the broader cohort of women, um, the killings tended to be rural. Of the 21 killings, only three took place in Dublin or wider Dublin County. And the women were generally economically precarious. Many were described as being of the labouring class. And this clearly informed the social context of their lives and it informed the context in which they committed the killings and the reasons, the motivations, why. Um, but it also informed how these women were considered in discourses of pathology. And class was a significant feature in how Doran Daly and Cadden were considered and how their <coughs> behaviour was viewed. So, as I kind of mentioned before, mercy was one of the overriding themes that came out of the PhD research. Of course, there were 22 women who were sentenced to death, and only 21 of them were executed. So right off the bat, you can see that there is disproportionate, certainly in terms of gender, levels of reprieve. And there was a few places through the process where mercy could be shown. Uh, for example, when the jury gave their guilty verdict, they could add a recommendation to mercy, a writer, and the writer could be detailed if they wanted. They could include extra information in it. Uh, so... There were cases of jury recommendations to Mercy where they said, you know, because of the mental state at the time, and a lot of these related to the killing of infants that occurred straight after birth. 
Likewise, after conviction, the Minister for Justice could write to the trial judge and ask him what his views were on the case, which was done in every case. And that gave the trial judge an opportunity to kind of privately express his own opinions on the case, what the aggravating or extenuating circumstances were as he saw them. Um, but it's also the case that there was a very real discomfort through the entire period under kind of discussion today that people did not want to execute women. And there are some quotes which show that there wasn't any reticence about saying, actually, we shouldn't execute this woman because she is a woman. So the first quote is from 1927. It's from the Department of Justice. Um, and it's almost like the Department of Justice kind of motto. It's very much, we shouldn't execute her because she is a woman. And that's relevant in a way that at the same period, it just wasn't in England and Wales, for example. The uh, second quote from 1938, so you can see it. Uh, persists as we go through the decades. That was one of the trial judges saying, on the other hand, the accused is a woman, and that's something we cannot overlook. And then even into the 1940s, on the case of Agnes McAdam, one of these um, is someone in the department, and one of them is um, a TD, and their views are, but we're not, we're not going to kill her, are we? It's, she's a woman. And that persisted into the case of Cadden as well, actually, in the mid and late 1950s. So the only woman who didn't benefit from this uh, was Annie Walsh, and the only one of the 22 who was actually executed. Um, she was executed along with her lover, Michael Talbot, in August 1925 for the murder of her husband. Uh, the prosecution suggested that Talbot and Walsh were having a sexual relationship, so the suggested motive was related to this relationship, but also to financial gain, because it seemed like Walsh hoped to get compensation for the death of her husband. So there was quite a few aggravating circumstances for Walsh. First, she'd murdered her husband. Um, historically, of course, husband murder had been viewed as, as an act of petty treason, because it was a revolt against the natural order of things. And it sounded also very much uh, like Walsh was the ringleader. She was older than Talbot, and it sounded like he had basically done what he'd been told to do. Um, and the fact that the victim was the husband is obviously, it's no coincidence. The previous woman to be executed in Ireland prior to that had been in 1903, and she'd also killed her husband. And basically, all of the women who were executed from kind of 1864 onwards had killed adult men. So there is a pattern of who was being punished and what kind of victim had any status. Um, so Annie Walsh was the only one who was executed, so there was mercy for women because of their sex. And it's when we kind of come to look at what happened after reprieve uh, that you can see that mercy was frequently double-edged. And there were often quite far-reaching consequences of paternalism. So Although two women spent very long periods of time in prison, the vast majority spent considerably less. And there, were, there was a differential in prison time experience between women who'd killed infants and women who'd killed adults. But even that's the kind of case of um, Mary Moynihan. And she spent like about four years, I think, in prison and she'd killed an adult. So it was less than men spent in prison even adjusting for the victim status. Um, but it's not that straightforward because the nature of paternalism and the kind of flip side of the mercy 
was that although women spent less time than men in prison, a lot of the 21 reprieved women would have been discharged from prison, Mountjoy prison, on the condition that they enter a religious institution. And these tended to be Magdalene laundries. Um, and you can see from yourself on the slide, you know the names of the ones that are familiar. They're the Magdalene laundries. And then uh, there was one Protestant woman who went to an institution and she went to the Bethany home. So the thing is, once they kind of reach um, the, the institutions, I don't know kind of what happens because the um, orders and congregations obviously haven't opened up their <laughs> files to researchers. Um, but even from looking at the anonymized cases in the McAleese report, you can see that some of the women um, who are in my sample ultimately died in the institutions or spent decades there and then died in a hospital. But throughout this period, it was generally the view at the Department of Justice that prison was no place for a woman, kind of regardless of her crime, even for women like convicted of murder, prison was not the right place for them. So this is the context, a lot of preamble. That was the context in which uh, I think I have to consider the three cases that I'm going to be talking about in more detail. Uh, there was a very evident strain of paternalism that ran through all of the cases of women who were convicted of murder in this period. And there's a sense in which, even in the cases where you could consider it objectively heinous, that it's inappropriate to execute because of the sex of the perpetrator. And in many cases, it's also inappropriate to have her in prison for a particularly long period of time. And this very much relates to the private patriarchal kind of condition of Irish society at the time and the particular status of women. So now I'll go through the cases that I'm going to talk about in a bit more detail. So on the 3rd of June 1926, Elizabeth Dorn was convicted of the murder of her infant. Uh, she spent a few weeks in Mountjoy Prison and then she was certified as insane and transferred to Dundrum. So as I'd said before, she gave birth to her infant in a county home and on her release, a staff member had taken her to the train station, put her on the train and when she got off, in her own words, she said, after a while, I caught the child with my two hands by the throat and killed it. I there buried it in a sewer and came away. Uh, uh, Doran was not uh, a typical infanticide. She was older and she was a widow and she already had three grown adult sons. Um, Mary Dealey was convicted in 1949 for the murder of Mary Gibbons, who was the elderly woman and a stranger to her who she'd attacked uh, with a hammer in a Dublin church. Uh, the victim was unknown to Dealey but it was suggested that the attack resulted from Daly's attempt to steal her handbags. Um, she had a young family and she was in difficult financial circumstances. And then Mimi Cadden was convicted in November 56 for the murder of Helen O'Reilly. So O'Reilly had died in Cadden's Dublin bedsit while undergoing an abortion uh, performed by Cadden. Cadden spent approximately one year and 10 months in Mountjoy Prison before she too was certified as insane and transferred to Dundrum in August 58. And she died there in April 1959. So in terms of how diagnoses were made in these cases, um, the case of Elizabeth Dorn revealed that she was diagnosed with a delusional insanity. So as with pretty much all the women in the sample, her legal team didn't attempt a defense of insanity. And it was only once she went to prison that her behavior was thought to be going downhill quite badly. And the behavior is described as some days ago, this prisoner became very noisy, uh, shouting day and night, beating the walls violently, she has dirty habits, she was seen on committal, and she suffers from delusional insanity. But they thought she was probably curable. Um, 
and after less than five years in Dundrum, she was discharged to the care of her family. So in the case of Mary Daly, who'd attacked the woman in the church, she was never certified as insane, but throughout she was referred to in very pathologised terms. And that was evident in a diagnosis of her as an hysterical psychopath. Um, and when the prison medical officer was kind of reporting on her fitness to plead before the trial, he said, I don't consider her to be suffering from any gross mental derangement, but she is a highly strong person. And from a study of the depositions and her own account of her life since early this year, I consider she's been living for some months past under continuous mental strain. And then in the case of Mimi Cadden, it was uh, her disruptive behaviour in prison and... Um, her condition going downhill quite badly in prison that led to her certification as insane and the kind of lengthy quotes talks about kind of violent um, habits that are quite similar to Doran's and just a very difficult aggressive prisoner and it would appear um, from the kind of consistencies and the types of behaviour diagnosed as insane from Doran in the 1920s through to Cadden in the 1950s that there is something about gender inappropriate behaviour in the form of violence that is quite likely to be kind of classified as atypical for women and potentially lead to an insanity um, certification. And in the case of Cadden, she was only certified as insane after her conviction. Um, and it seems likely that any official diagnosis was kind of resisted until the state had secured a conviction. Um, because she came to trial as a abject person with a very bad reputation. She was known th through, you know, Dublin guards and many others to be an abortionist. And her defence likewise hadn't attempted to argue insanity either, but they pathologised her throughout the trial. Uh, she was branded as mad by her own counsel, although they didn't attempt it formally. And prior to the trial, the prison medical officer expressed doubts about her mental state as well. And he said, it's a very difficult matter to arrive at a proper estimation of her mentality. And these discourses that she um, was a bit mad uh, shaped rationales for commutation as her legal team argued after conviction that throughout the trial they'd been consciously kind of anxious of what she would say or do next. And they decided not to put her on the stand in case she would say something that would completely damn her. Um, but there was arguably an official thirst for blood in this case and the department wanted to get a conviction regardless of mental state because of what you represented as an illegal abortionist. So kind of moving on from the three cases to so look at some of the themes that came out of it. One of the significant things through all of the cases uh, was the idea that insanity could be passed through the family and that can be seen in the theories of kind of hereditary insanity and degeneracy, um, which was like a popular late 19th century theory which posits that the lower uh, races are predisposed to various mental, moral and physical weaknesses. Um, and this includes insanity. Uh, by the late 19th century, the rise in the numbers of Irish insane was being referred to um, in light of this kind of way of looking at it, this framework. And questions of insanity within my cases and in cases of men who were sentenced to death in this period as well, they all show consideration of, well, what's their family like? Is there anyone in their family that we can see who exhibits similar behaviour? Um, this kind of linking of the family and um, insanity had been exacerbated in Ireland by fears of um, 
intermarrying of families following the famine, which had led Irish inspectors to fear for a consequent increase in insanity. And fears such as these carried some very self-evident conclusions. Fiacre Byrne has talked about Irish psychiatrists as enthusiastic purveyors of eugenics discourse. And within the three case studies, the government memorandums kind of show that uh, searches were made for family members who showed any sign of insanity. And this was a frequent occurrence across the post-conviction stage for everyone. When the commutation of a death sentence was being considered and they wanted something to explain the woman's behaviour. The mental state of Cadden, for example, was explored in this framework. A Garda report that looked into her family said, there's no history of insanity in the family, but there is the first cousin who's been a patient of a mental hospital for 10 years. I mean, at this stage, that such relatives could be found was hardly surprising, because in the mid-1950s, Ireland had experienced peak institutionalisation. Um, but the importance of Cadden's family connection and reputation is very pertinent in the schema of identity, which relies on notions of her family, of her community. Uh, for example, as a contrast to her own very devalued sanity and reputation, it was noted that her brother was well-to-do, respectable, and law-abiding. Inquiries into Mary Daly's family also found um, a relative who was religiously touched, um, but the Garda were happy to report that apart from another cousin who'd attempted to slit his throat with a razor, that um, most of the immediate family and the entirety of her maternal relatives were free from insanity. So as well as uh, searching for relations who exhibited these signs of insanity, there's also comments um, through some of the cases that show a kind of Darwinian-infused way of looking at behaviour, especially of people of the lower classes or the labouring classes in this context. And Elizabeth Dorn was viewed to be um, of a low order of intelligence. So clearly the gendering of notions of insanity has some pedigree. Mad, bad or sad are the tropes that we kind of trot out to discuss women who kill. And such women have often been explained using psychological or pseudo-psychological theories. And it's hardly surprising. So, for example, the, the female offender from Lombroso, which offered a very spurious empirical foundation for an essentialist view. Um, while Lombroso's ideas didn't necessarily take off when it came to male offenders, they didn't take off particularly in Britain, his ideas on women did tap into something and have been a much more difficult cultural legacy to shift. So the very low proportion of murders committed by women as well also renders them anomalous. So straight off the bat, you're looking for an explanation that explains the atypical. Um, the resort to pathology in cases of women who kill can um, diminish their agency, but it can also diminish their culpability, for example, through the infanticide legislation or through the defense of diminished responsibility for people or for women who killed their abusive spouses. So there can be short-term utility, even though it remains problematic in the longer term. So throughout the three cases today and kind of throughout the sample more broadly, the idea of the female body as predisposition to insanity was very present. In Ireland, the Infanticide Act of 1949 was premised on this link. Um, this was the legislation that officially created the offence of infanticide and removed infant murder from the roster of capital offences. Um, but there was evident unease in Irish officialdom about a blanket pathologization of infant murder. Um, and 1949 was over 20 years after the first infanticide legislation had been passed in England, and this kind of unease maybe explains why it took so long. 
there seemed to have been a concern with infant mortality, yes, but also very much so with maternal morality, that this would be a free pass. And the quote on the screen is from consultations in the 1940s about infanticide legislation. And it's written by the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for Local Government and Public Health, um, who thinks maybe blanket pathologization is just a step too far. Um, and that women will use this as an excuse. And really, um, is it not kind of over-pathologizing what should be treated more seriously? And Kleena Radigan found in her work on post-1922 cases that understanding the circumstances in the trauma of childbirth and the associated stresses were more common than explicit pathology in terms of excusing um, infant murder. Likewise, Karen Brennan found that insanity disposals were actually quite rare prior to the Infanticide Act. Um, although there were few insanity verdicts, however, uh, there was always a presumption made for disturbance of mind at a more kind of informal level. Uh, likewise, in her analysis from 1850 to 1900, Elaine Farrell found that, yes, there was you know, explicit acceptance of pathology but it wasn't necessarily that common that explicit pathologization would be re um, resorted to. Women were more likely to be pathologized if they were viewed as weak-minded or had family members who were insane. So it's been suggested that a finding of insanity in these cases uh, was related more to the women being considered mentally defective rather than a true psychiatric diagnosis. And throughout the periods, um, childbirth outside marriage was explicitly linked with um, women being considered defective. And you can see this in Elizabeth Doran's case, where she's referred to as a woman of low mentality. Um, although many of the women who, were, um, who killed their infants were considered to be suffering the immediate effects of childbirth, in some cases, these effects could be seen to last for some months. So Mary Daly, who killed... Um, the woman in the church. She'd given birth six months prior to, she um, to the period when she committed the killing. And the judge noted in his private correspondence um, to the department where he was talking about extenuating circumstances, you know, he says her conduct is so inexplicable as to make it appear um, that she is for the moment insane. And he relates this to the fact that she gave birth six months before. So once again, these kind of murders, which are almost masculine in their profile, they're so unusual that there is almost a natural grasp towards the pathologized explanation. And a member of the public wrote in as well to say, I don't think you've considered that she gave birth six months ago. So the three cases um, also kind of demonstrate how differences of age and class and marital status influenced the ways in which the woman's behavior was interpreted. And each of the three women had a very different profile. And this contributed to the differential ways in which they were represented. Mary Daly was only 27. She was the youngest. She was married and she had a young child. The other two women were older. Mimi Cadden was unmarried and in her mid-60s. Elizabeth Dorn was a widow. She was 40 um, and she had three grown sons. So. The respectable morality of Mary Daly is immediately in very much contrast to the devalued moral profile of Doran and Cadden, one of whom had been explicitly labelled as depraved 
uh, at one point and had killed her infant, that was Doran, while the other was a known abortionist who was notorious in Dublin. As I said before, Cadden had even been referred to as a mad, bad old woman by her own legal team. Her age was clearly very relevant in attempts to diminish her culpability. And witnesses during the trial were brought onto the stand to say that um, she suffered from ill health and she had arthritis. But her depiction as an old woman could go one of two ways and it didn't necessarily reap her a huge amount of sympathy because unintentionally it was phrasing that invoked the idea of the witch. And Lizzie Seal, in her work on women in 20th century England and Wales who have killed, has noted that although spinster could be a perfectly respectable status at the time, it remained non-normative. And it was associated with uh, the celibacy and the mental harm that that was um, considered to bring. So although Ireland had low marriage rates post-famine with high numbers of never-married women, um, it could also be argued that Spencer remained respectable but non-normative in Ireland as well. Elizabeth Doran, meanwhile, was a widow, uh, a status that was also common in Ireland. As many women married older men, many Irish women experienced bereavement. The 1926 uh, census recorded um, over 120,000 widows, for example. And as Ernard Byrne has noted, there were very different, uh, definite expectations of sexual propriety, which were attached to widowhood. So in the 30s, the Committee of Inquiry into Widows and Orphans Pensions suggested that widows only receive assistance if they were of sober habits and of good moral character. So although this wasn't included in the final legislation, it does suggest that there were um, moral limits to what a widow could do. In contrast, Mary Daly, who had the husband and the young child, her motherhood was referenced numerous times throughout her case, generally in her favour, such as during bail applications, um, and her defence counsel had earlier argued that it would cause untold hardship to be separated from her baby, who was at this stage kind of just like less than a year old. And in many ways, Daly's actions could be seen to be for her family. The suspected motive was that she'd wanted to rob the bags of the victim, so she was doing it because the family were in bad financial straits. So in a way, it made it quite a kind of sympathetic narrative. And class was also crucial in how all three of these women were understood. So a report to the inspector of mental hospitals two years after Doran's committal there concluded that though free from delusions, she is both mentally and morally of a decidedly low type. So this description of her as mentally and morally low invokes her morality, uh, childbirth outside of marriage, um, as well as her status as a member of the labouring classes. And her eventual release from prison was also related to her class. So she was conditionally discharged after nearly five years, aided by the persistent partitioning of her adult sons. On her release, the Department of Justice requested that local guardies submit quarterly reports on her. And all of their resulting reports are universally positive. So this is just a snippet, but they all say the same thing. And after they say it in detail, they just say, yep, as before, as before. Then um, a couple of years later, the final report that the guards submitted said she is continuing to behave normally. Perhaps we might discontinue these. And in her favour, and what aids her, is her industriousness, um, her observation of religion, and the fact that she's a good neighbour, which kind of all mark her down as a good, respectable member of the labouring classes. And Una Walsh found in her work on Balance Slow 
but um, most of the inmates were drawn from the labouring classes. And it was held as crucial to engage them in work because that's what they were used to. So sanity then, along with respectability, could be redeemed through industry. And Doran's case also demonstrates the value of family support in getting release. Without the petitioning of her sons, it's very doubtful she would have been released when she was and potentially ever. So the initial assessment of her family was very much class-based. So the guards gave the report to the Department of Justice and the departments were like, ooh, the conditions do not appear ideal. I think her family are deficient. Whereas the guards wrote back and said, but her sons are of sober dispositions, they are sensible, they are well-conducted young men. And we can contrast Doran's experience with the experience um, of other women who are trying to get out of the asylum. So Brendan Kelly's talked about women through the 19th into the 20th centuries, and he's found that if they were released from Dundrum, it was much more likely that they would end up going to another asylum rather than being released directly to their families. And um, Pauline Pryor has written that Dundrum was happiest when it could just transfer patients rather than kind of accept the liability of releasing them entirely to their family. And then Mary Daly. Class was very evident in certain comments um, on the files about Daly. Very explicit, including things like she is from a middle-class family in the west of Ireland. This was a rarity among the cohort. Um, also noted that her father was above the average of country folk in intelligence, which I think is rude about country folk. Um, and then finally, the women were considered as difficult, but not dangerous. And um, from the cases, it seems that they were considered first as women and only secondly as murderers. Um, and I think you see this in particular whenever you look at the case of Daly. So Daly's crime was very atypical. It was almost masculine in, in its profile. She'd killed a stranger in an unprovoked violent attack, um, supposedly for money. Um, and she was described as an hysterical psychopath. Um, in reports on her. And the term psychopath was generally kind of coded male and coded dangerous. Uh, but despite this, she was never certified as insane as the other two were. So just from a 1966 report, published almost two decades after her conviction, it's recommended that aggressive psychopaths who'd been convicted of a violent crime are uh, transferred to a secure unit in Dundrum. So go back 20 years. Um, she was diagnosed as a psychopath. Um, she had been convicted of a very violent crime. But throughout, she continued to be constructed under almost a victim paradigm. And when her release from prison was being considered by the Department for Justice, it was a depiction of her as emotionally frail, which dominated discussion. The memo kind of suggested that she'd attacked without premeditation in a panic. And it was viewed that this murder conviction itself was one of the harshest they'd ever seen. And there's a view throughout of her as um, very feminine um, with the frailty and the weaknesses that this kind of embeds. And her background, her marital status, and um, her middle class status, the fact that she had a child, um, and everything that this bestowed in terms of her character uh, meant that she could be talked about under a victim discourse rather than as dangerous or as someone who needed to go into Dundrum. And there was huge public sympathy for her. So to kind of 
conclude, um, the women were made sense of through webs of meaning that drew on their families um, and their own bodies. Uh, but the cases demonstrate the hugely contingent nature of the diagnoses in all of the cases, which are shaped around their class, whether they could be seen as respectable, their marital status. And there was a huge distance between marginalized figures like Cadden and Doran and, um, and Daly. And the case of Cadden shows how diagnosis is very contingent and her diagnosis arguably was delayed until the government had gotten what they wanted and they wanted the conviction. <coughs> And the women were viewed as difficult um, rather than dangerous, reflecting a very gendered understanding of the type of person who could be considered dangerous. Um, and I think rather than violence, uh, because they all committed acts of violence, whether in, in prison or in the killings, rather than violence, the real threat these women could pose uh, was in terms of their immorality and sexuality. So throughout the broader 22 cases, the threat, the dangerousness, is their kind of rampant sexuality rather than any physical violence that they could inflict. Um, and I have all the references on this. If you want to kind of email me afterwards, I will email all the references that I didn't put in the PowerPoint. Thanks very much. Thank